On the next Creativity in Motion podcast, stage director Jeff Storer. We are all capable of creativity, and in fact, it's a necessity. It's the way that we get through 16 months of isolation during a pandemic is by imagining ourselves moving forward. That's coming up right now. The music kind of sounds like this. Hi, I'm Chris Hollow. And I'm Mark Mosry, and this is episode number 10 of Creativity in Motion, a podcast about creativity where we talk with creatives of all kinds to find out why they create and especially how they use creativity to overcome obstacles. In this episode, we're talking to stage director Jeff Storer about running a professional theater for three decades and what it takes to keep it thriving. Before we visit with Jeff, I need to tell you about our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. In 1973, NOSI College opened as a fine arts school and has transformed into Tennessee's only private art college. They offer bachelor's degree programs in commercial illustration, graphic design, video and film, and photography. Starting in September of 2021, they will begin offering a brand new culinary arts associate's degree. NOSI has a beautiful 55,000-square-foot facility that was built with the artistic student in mind. It includes computer labs, production suites, photography and video studios, and a fully stocked equipment cage. Everything students need to get creative. To learn more about NOSI College of Art, you can visit nosi.edu, that's N-O-S-S-I edu, for degree program details, faculty information, and student work. Today, we're talking with Jeff Storer. Jeff is a veteran stage director and professor of theater studies at Duke University. He is a co-founder of Man Bites Dog Theater, a professional theater company in Durham, North Carolina, whose mission has been to foster, promote, and increase public knowledge and appreciation of the theater. Jeff, we're glad to have you here. Thanks for coming. Glad to be here. Excellent. I'm, I'm, I'm glad to meet you finally. I've heard a lot about you, especially in the drive over here. Great. We had a lot of conversations about you and and, and Mark's uh, experience and past with your theater company and and uh, being in the Duke program and theater program. What made you want to start a professional theater here in Durham, North Carolina? Uh, I came to Durham in 1982. The company was started in 1987. And one of the things that I observed um, in, as sort of parallel to my teaching at Duke University, I was a professor at Duke University, was the amount of theater that was not being represented here in the area. There were the big Broadway houses that were were sending, you know, uh, tour shows, national tour shows or Broadway shows through. There were the academic programs, which were solid and great, but not really representative of the kind of alternative theater scene that you might find off-Broadway or that you might find um, off the loop in, in, in Chicago. And we were also, if you look at the dates in 1987, we were beginning to enter into this sort of really frightening political stage um, where um, Jesse Helms was dominating uh, politics nationally, a son of North Carolina, so that there were some really close connections with what was happening with national politics. And as a um, 
openly gay man who uh, has been in a relationship with my partner and co-founder of the theater for the last 37 years. Uh, we were just beginning our relationship at a period of time where Ed, AIDS was devastating um, the landscape. And we were not making, there were not being any headways made between the disease that was killing our family and our friends and uh, the, the, the politics that were happening. Um, and it became really very clear that uh, theater was a way that we could address those issues. We could address the politics. We could address the lack of attention. We could address the prejudice. Uh, we could address those things within uh, by making theater, by making a certain kind of theater that wasn't being represented in here. So we basically m defined our uh, dramaturgy for the company uh, by literally looking at the types of theater that we thought were occurring elsewhere, but were not occurring in this area. I, I don't know much about Durham, but is that what, what did you find that was an easy sell or a hard sell? I mean, was that if that kind of theater wasn't here already, did you find that they were looking for it or they, they didn't know it existed and you felt the opportunity to present well, it? Well, I wouldn't say they didn't know it existed, but uh, but it was a hard sell uh, because you're 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 by definition doing work that has never been seen before. I mean, that was really one of our criteria. We weren't going to do work that had been done in this area before. So we were looking for the voices that were being lost in this area. We were looking for the subject matters uh, all the way from AIDS, HIV to um, returning Vietnam war vets. Um, uh, there was dramaturgy out there. There were plays out there that were covering these subjects, but they were never making it here uh, to Durham. So people had to be convinced that, number one, we knew what we were doing. Um, and number two, that it was part of what they were interested in. Um, and, and, and that by offering it, they, uh, yes, maybe an acquired taste, but also began to, I think, shape some of their ideas and their opinions uh, about uh, the politics and the culture that they were living in. So it's a little bit like, a little bit like getting someone to taste a new food, Right. You have to you have to convince them to try it, and hope that there's enough of the experience that they found, you know, palatable that they would come back. And the next right. time they come back to that restaurant, they try something that's different on the menu. Right, or or get used to knowing that as long as they go to that restaurant, they're going to have a quality experience, and that becomes part of it. I think if you're going to be taking a chance on something. You want to be taking a chance with someone who, uh, with an organization uh, who has been successful at taking chances uh, before. So I think part of our uh, acquisition of an audience came about as a result of building a certain kind of confidence uh, between our audience and, 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 and the work that we were doing. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, and it also that directly begins to relate to fundraising. Uh, that relates to uh, how do we keep, you know, how do we keep this thing going? What's the level on which we can operate, still tell stories that we think are really important, that are vitally important, and yet be able to afford to uh, hire the creative personnel. Uh, as you guys know, as filmmakers, uh, it's all about uh, putting together a community of collaborators. 
collaborators and valuing those collaborators across the board. But that's a large group of people. It's never just uh, the painter alone in his studio or the writer alone at their typewriter. It's, it's, it's managing, you know, 10, 20, 30 sometimes people who uh, all have to be paid, all need to, uh, you know, understand what their role in uh, this uh, project is. Um, so it becomes, a, it becomes I think, a, an interesting coordination challenge. With so many um, goals, so, so many different kinds of theater that you want to introduce to this area, it seems like the decision of what your first show is going to be in your first season, like the first statement that you're going to make seems like a big decision and a decision that would be considered from a lot of different angles, right? How, how was that? I'm sure it was thrilling and exciting. And stressful. But, and stressful. Yeah, absolutely. But when you're making, when you're deciding what that first production is going to be, how was that? Well, you have, you have to, uh, it's it's important to understand that that uh, you don't know from day to day, and, and this is a general thing about I think artists and creativity in general. You don't know for day to day whether you're going to be here tomorrow or not. So there's this sense of moving forward um, with a with with a with a certain amount of hope and a certain amount of of faith, um, uh, and and without without really understanding where that planning will take you. Now, having said that, um, as we define this sense of what kind of theater is not represented here, we begin to get very, very specific. Um, and and um, it's probably best to tell the story like this. We were in New York City in um, 1985. We saw a preview production of uh, Larry Kramer's The Normal Heart. Um, my now husband and I were devastated by the piece of theater. It was, it, it, it changed our lives. Uh, it changed our lives in terms of how we understood ourselves, uh, as gay men. It changed our lives in terms of how we understood the power of theater. Um, and we wanted to bring that to this area. We wanted, we didn't understand why that had to be somehow um, uh, ghettoized in, in um, um, you know, in the New York, in the major metropolitan areas. This was important information. This was important um, uh, politics. This was important ways in which people were dying. And this could possibly be a way in which a culture and a community uh, could do something about that. So the first thing in answer to your question, I'm going to get back to that, I promise. The first thing was this this sense of a, of, of, of a political theater that could actually open conversations that might change people's lives. Um, and, and, and so identifying what theater was doing that or could do that and how could we be the one to be the teller of the story. So we knew in that first season we were going to have the normal heart. But we didn't, we knew we couldn't just do the normal heart, number one. And we knew that we weren't maybe ready to do the normal heart 
stepping out for the first time. So we went back to the drawing board and defined that idea of what is not here. And we came up with two other types of theater. Uh, One type of theater was a theater that worked with form, that changed the form of things. So rather than the regular three-act play or two-act play, uh, it was somebody who was experimenting with text or experimenting with actually how you make and put together Uh, theater. And uh, we ran across a script by Jeffrey Jones uh, called 70 Scenes of Halloween, um, which was basically just um, uh, 70 different scenes, all that take place on a Halloween night. The director and the actors learn the scenes and then can perform them in any order that they want to perform them. So we were challenging that idea for an audience of what form could be. The second type of theater was a kind of a magic realism that was starting to sort of come out, which was probably most brilliantly uh, realized uh, in one of the greatest, I think, plays of the 20th century, uh, Tony Kushner's Angels in America, where basically a realistic concept in Angels in America, the idea of it uh, being a political idea, a very strong political ideas as well. But the idea that, that that concept of where we live in reality, but also where we can live in our in our um, in, in, the, in the magic part of our reality, in the part of ourselves that we can imagine, the part that has angels busting through the ceiling of, um, of a dying man's um, bedroom. Um, so that second type of um, a theater for us was represented by a play called The Wool Gatherer by uh, William Mastra Simone, which took basically a realistic premise, but then had a slight twist to it. Uh, so then Normal Heart was the third one. So our opening season was three shows dealing with form, uh, aberrations of realism, and political and social theater. And that became the guide for the rest of the 31 years that we produced. All shows fell into one of those three categories and all were premieres in this area, never have been seen in this area before. So that basically shaped that that direction and told us how to construct the dramaturgy of what we were making. Well, it sounds like you were able to have some success with those first three and that first year, because certainly you wouldn't have gone 33 years, let alone two or three more, if you hadn't achieved some level of success with those first three. People started talking and uh, there was a conversation going on about the work. Uh, We kept thinking we were leaving Durham, that we would be moving to Washington, D.C., we'd be moving to New York, we'd be moving to a larger uh, professional um, uh, market. But... When you began to define what your personal goals are, which is to make and tell stories that reach an audience and create a conversation, create a dialogue within the community that you're living in, then I began to ask, we began to ask ourselves, that's what we're doing here. That's what's happening here. From the first season, there was enough interest. At that time, and this is going to make me sound like an old man, but at that time, there were seven different uh, 
publications, uh, newspaper publications, that would send reviewers out to review shows. So you had seven different opinions about a crazy play called 70 Scenes of Halloween that appeared in an empty shoe warehouse in downtown Durham, which at that time was totally and completely at the very, very bottom of its, um, you know, of its life. I mean, it was uh, it was a, 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 a jungle in downtown Durham just because... <laughs> Uh, everything was was vacated. So when we started to actually get the, that response, there was encouragement to then go on to the next season, and then that kept going. Um, uh, now, what happened that changed, which was tragic, really, um, was that the newspapers all started to disappear, right? So that the, um, uh, the power of the critics, so to speak, uh, was held by fewer by fewer people. Um, so uh, until we sort of ramped up again with podcasts and and um, reviewing online and things like that, we were there was a period of time most recently where we were were not having that same kind of conversation and discourse. But it made it seem as though why not stay here if what we really wanted was to tell stories to an audience and have a conversation that would come out of that. This was happening here and it was happening with our company. We were somehow striking a match under something that the community seemed to want, something that the artists in this area seemed to prosper by. Uh, So it seemed to make more sense to stay here and see this out. What a incredible feeling of validation you know, when you realize that the thing, you know, you piece this company together, this, this this professional theater together in the hopes of achieving something. And then that thing, you start to realize, wow, we were right on with this. Right. I mean, it's the whole thing has been a been a real miracle. And I, I, I might start this conversation that we're having by telling the end of the story, which I'm incredibly proud of, is that after 31 years of producing Uh, We had owned a building for 20 years that we had produced out of. We sold our building in downtown Durham, and we were able to take the proceeds of that money and turn it into the Man Bites Dog Theater Fund. So after 31 years of producing professional theater in Durham, North Carolina, we not only paid off all of our bills, but we had enough money to create a Man Bites Dog Theater development fund, which was going to allow us to now grant money to the other theater companies that are working in the area. Uh, So we're really proud of the fact that we've uh, made a transition and that that transition is taking us into a place where we can continue to support uh, what we began to build, uh, you know, in 1987. That's like one of my, one of my lottery fantasies is being able to be a seed money fund for other people's dreams. Yeah. I think that's just, I mean, that's just awesome. It's amazing. It's amazing. And it's also amazing given the, that, uh, arts stories don't usually go that, that way. Uh, I would not say that any of it was easy. Um, and, um, we were incredibly sick of raising money and cleaning bathrooms, but to feel as though you've accomplished something, you have a body of work that you've accomplished, number one, and then that you're going to go on and try to, um, uh, help to seed and to, uh, develop, um, a work by other artists, uh, is a very, very fulfilling uh, for us. Was there much of a partnership, um, uh, effect with, 
uh, with the university where you were teaching and the work that you were doing at Man Bites Dog, did were your were, was your theater were your theater lives sort of distinct and separate, or was there some overlap in what was happening in your work at the university and what was happening at Man Bites Dog? I think there was a, an important distinction between the two that was, was really important to maintain. Having said that, in the time that I've taught at Duke, Duke has grown in its understanding of what artists are about. And the work that I was doing for Man Bites Dog began to more directly relate to my professional achievement at Duke, which allowed me to keep that job moving parallel to actually producing the theater. Uh, Duke, on several occasions, um, got involved with funding specific projects. Um, And also there was a students who were ready to make a move from uh, an academic uh, environment to a professional environment, this was a place where they could they could go and maybe ha- maybe there was the right role for them. We were able to cast them. We were able to incorporate them into internships th- with the theater that would allow them to get their first professional jobs. So there was crossover, of course, because I was working uh, at the university with a pool of really talented, uh, intelligent students. And uh, so it made perfect sense to, if, if appropriate, to give them the opportunity to, you know, move on into the profession. And I'm very proud to say that many, many, many of my former students who are working professionally today did go through Man Bites Dog at some point or another, you know, had early career uh, roles, had early career um, positions in the theater uh, at Man Bites Dog. So I, I, I look at it as, as an opportunity to have provided some opportunity for them as well. I don't know much of anything about theater, if I'm being completely completely honest. Um, so how many of the of the plays that you put on were original and how many were adaptations or other people's work? The, the, the majority of things were uh, written by playwrights. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, rem- remind you, I'm reminding you that um, the playwrights were new playwrights, most of them. Uh, we did some of the first plays by, for instance, Tony Kushner, who then went on, you know. And then there were a percentage of them um, that were adaptations that we actually adapted ourselves. Um, and there were some original uh, shows that we did in there. So we did, we were doing all area and world premieres. Uh, it was a, it was a mix, but primarily um, it was about identifying voices. I think that's the best way to look at it, is what voices are actually talking about things now? What voices were writing plays that had, um, you know, that had some importance to this uh, place? And by bringing those stories here, we were able to continue to make that connection. So creatively speaking then, which which at, at adapting versus creating from scratch, like what what is the most satisfying for you creatively? Uh, I think it has to do with the volume. Uh, I mean, a, a playwright presents you with a blueprint of, 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 of a way to tell the story. The company, the director, the designers interpret that blueprint uh, in order to tell the story. Uh, when you are adapting or you are uh, doing original uh, writing yourself, then you're sort of in control of both the blueprint and the um, uh, and the execution. Now, there's some great things that happen about that because you can obviously just like 
you working on your film, you can make adaptations in that because you have control over the uh, content, you have control over the text, and you are going to um, uh, shape that in the way that 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 uh, works the best for the telling uh, the telling of the story. When I'm working with a script by Tony Kushner, or um, uh, you know, I'm I'm going to be. Uh, or Ter- Terrence Alvin McGraney, um, the, uh, who is the guy who, who uh, wrote the original play that Moonlight is based upon. Um, I'm, I'm not going to touch that text. Uh, that text is sacred to me. And my job as a director is to uh, see through the intent of the playwright. And so I want to make sure that, that that blueprint is always honored. So it's, it's um, I don't know if I'm answering your question, oh, you or, are. but it's a different challenge, I think, uh, when you are in, ch- in charge of the whole picture. It's actually very parallel to filmmaking in that the script is a blueprint and the director and the producer, and they, they make it what they want based on the script. And screenwriters are taught to not give direction in the script because you don't want, you don't want to tell the director exactly what to do. You want to give them the gist of it and let them create and have some creative freedom to make it what they want. Well, the way I look at it is if the playwright what the the playwright better have uh, voiced uh, their intent if it was important to them within the body of the text itself. So there are some brilliant playwrights who will give you uh, hints or will give you ideas about how they want that interpretation executed. Uh, But, but, uh, but, there are also playwrights that allow that like the the cleanness of a script and a like like the reverberations that can happen. No one is. I don't think um, uh, playwrights are are envisioning one specific production. I mean, the the real true uh, joy of good playwriting is 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 to be able to imagine this play being. Uh, the story being told in many, many different places and many different ways. Uh, so it's that it's that degree of, of interpretation uh, that that one that one can assume and or is directed by the uh, uh, the screenwriter or the playwright. And again, it's it's actually very similar for screenwriting in that if if it's important, if it's material and it really needs to be in the film then the screenwriter sort of has the ability to force that in. But if, but generally speaking, if it's not crucial to the film, you leave it out and let the team who options or purchases the script to make that decision themselves. William Shakespeare's West Side Story. Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, With, again, um, I mean, I think you're always looking at, the degree of respect you have for the original. I mean, the reason that West Side Story works is because there's a there's a great deal of respect for the original piece there and the playwright's intent, although it's being you know adapted into a new form. Uh, the playwright's intent, I think, is being is still being looked at and still being valued. Or Baz Luhrmann's film version of Romeo and Juliet, you know, a more urban, right? You know telling of that. That's great. Well, I mean, you, your, your forum, your platform, you know, Chris and I were talking this morning. It's like, yeah, Jeff has an amazing platform, has had an amazing platform with man bites dog to say and present what he wants to say and present. And before you can do that, you have to know what you want to say. And, and that 
I think is the crucial thing for, for people who have the platform is, wow, now I've got a really powerful platform here. What am I going to say? Well, for Ed Hunt and I, uh, it all goes back to that night in New York City when we saw the normal heart uh, at the public theater um, because it impressed upon us that there was a necessity to, to, to do something. Um, and uh, theater became the, the medium with which we, we felt we could do it most effectively. Creativity, then, in, over the course of three decades, you guys had to, I'm sure you had countless problems that you had to overcome, obstacles you had to overcome, roadblocks. We want to stage this this way or we want to, you know, this production is going to cost this much. How are we going to fit that into the budget that we have? Can you think of examples or stories where you had to really get creative in order to bring something here or find a way to get butts in seats to see it or to sell something that maybe to Jesse Helms's North Carolina might not have been so obviously, you know, attractive to them. Yeah, I think uh, I think in answering your questions, the, 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 there's two things that I might hit upon. One is a general, and one is a more specific. Um, the general is sort of the definition of creativity for me, um, which is the act of moving forward. That that creativity is taking control of moving ahead. Uh, and, and, and it can be as simple as sitting beside somebody's bedside who's sick uh, or reading a story to a child. Uh, I believe that those are creative acts. Learning how to make a, um, a pie crust uh, is, is, is a creative act. You are, you are envisioning something which will move you forward, and, 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 and then you're, you're going about exploring that, experimenting with that. Creativity is not the provenance of only the well-trained or the uh, folks that somehow get um, tagged with being, you know, um, uh, uber-talented. Uh, we are all capable of creativity. And in fact, it's a necessity. It's the way that we get through 16 months of isolation during a pandemic is by imagining ourselves moving forward. And so to me, that's the essence of what creativity is. And so when you apply that to my particular field, um, it's, it, it, it still remains the essence of moving forward. How do we, what is the creative way in which we uh, solve that problem? Um, and this is where the second thing comes in that I wanted to talk about, which was given circumstances. Anything that a maker makes whether you're a painter or a writer or a filmmaker or uh, a theater director, is going to be best realized by a total and complete understanding of what your given circumstances are. By understanding the given circumstances, I have a room that's this big, I can seat 35 people, I have exactly this much space, I have a, I have, you know, a, 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 a 10 by 14 foot platform in the middle of that space, um, I've got audience on three sides. Uh, I've got four uh, juice cans that I can put light bulbs in that can 
make fill lighting in what's going on here. Um, the more I understand those given circumstances, the more I can make those given circumstances become magic. I mean, I could do incredible things with very, very little uh, by just really closely analyzing what the medium is. What are the paints I have to work with? What's the surface that I'm going to be painting on? You know, what's the, sh what's the form of the story that I want to tell? Uh, how do I want that to be received? So I think that, that, that understanding those given circumstances helps you move ahead. And so going back to your question, um, we became really good with Man Bites Dog at just sort of saying, okay, we only have 16 four by eight, what's called Hollywood flats because they're, they're, they're um, not canvas, but they're uh, solid. So we have 16 four by eight Hollywood plat flats and we have uh, nine four by eight, uh, you know, two-ton platforms, and that's going to be the set because it's already in the space and we can't get rid of it. Right. So it has to be here in the space somewhere. So it's either going to be used for the stage setting or it's going to be used for the seating. And we were blessed in that the spaces that we worked in were all open spaces that we could reconfigure uh, by, by design, could reconfigure in a number of different ways. So for us, it was always a matter of recycling what we could, what we had, and then figuring out if we needed to spend $100 on a fake fur coat in order to make that moment in the play work, then that's where the $100 went. Did I answer your question? Yes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, no, I think that's, that's the that's way very... we problem solved. That's the really primary way in which we, we, we uh, problem solved. And, and we dealt with everything during that 30 years from pickets. Um, we had um, um, a, a gay performance series called Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Uh, Tim Miller, one of the uh, NEA uh, uh, artists that got defunded in the um, 80s, uh, was one of the artists that came in. We had pickets all around the Arts Council where he was performing. So we, we dealt with people who were uh, voicing opposition to our work. Um, we dealt with... Um, uh, people who wanted to censor the work or who felt as though the work was, uh, you know, too strong. The, the great joy of eventually getting our own space was that nobody told us what to do. And we got to choose the dramaturgy that we moved ahead on. And we lived or died by whether we could sell tickets to that thing or not. We've often said, and I don't know where I heard this, but I guess that's something that I say, which is that filmmaking is a lot like boxing you kind of go into it with a really great game plan and then you get hit in the face and the game plan's off. You yeah. have to adjust. You have to pivot. You have to problem solve. You have to recollect yourself and keep moving forward, as you were saying. And the irony, of course, is, is that a film becomes a set thing. A play eventually sets into a way in which the story is being told. Uh, but it by no means uh, is created that way. Uh, that the journey to creation of those things uh, becomes very, very fraught with uh, uh, difficulties and problems that you have to solve, changes, uh, different 
roads that you have to take. Uh, you know, this road is blocked, so you have to go off to the side, um, uh, take a side journey to get there. Um, and all of those things, um, in my experience, have ended up, again, as, you've, as you keep replaying the, what are my given circumstances now and how am I going to make that work for me? Uh, as you keep replaying that over and over again, you end up with something that's quite unique and quite special. And, and in the and especially in the case of of the collaborative arts um, like uh, theater and filmmaking, doesn't belong to any one person. It belongs to everybody that has been involved with it. Now, that's a pretty extraordinary act, a, a, a creative act that involves an entire group of people who are in sync uh, about telling a particular story. So I think that there's something really profound about that as well. I love the idea that in a theatrical play, which I've never been a part of, you may have a run of 10, 15, 20, 50 shows, and they might all be different. That's That that sounds pretty exciting. Well, and the reason that is, is, right, is because it's live and because anything can happen, just like this interview that we're doing here right now. I mean, anything can happen in the course in, in the course of it. Um, and so there's that, there's that, um, uh, there's the audience's attention and then there's the presence of the actor, the actor knowing that that by standing in front of this audience tonight on this stage in these troubled times, um, we were doing a show, for instance, um, I was in New York City when uh, uh, during 9-11. I had a show running down here. We had a show running in the midst of that. Right. So it changes everything. What's happening in the world around us begins to change the way in which we perceive things. Theater offers the ability for that to be immediate, absolutely now, absolutely immediate, uh, not preplanned, but but breathing and living in the space, in a communal space with an audience. And that relationship between the audience and the performer and the playwright and and, and, and the experience of the subject, even before you have an opportunity to dialogue about it or to say, oh, that was good or that was bad, that's not as important as whether you are immersed in the experience as the story is being told. It, it all goes back to our children, right? Sitting and reading stories to our children. I mean, it's how do you make that story interesting? How do you make that story come alive for that child? How do you how do you make that child see that, right? And I think that that's what we do. And that's also a very present, a very now uh, sort of encounter. Well, I like the idea that when you're performing, so, so you have a piece of, you have a work and then you interpret it as director and then over 50 shows, the actors interpret it again. I mean, they're trying to be sort of, I imagine, trying to give deliver it more or less the same way. But as you said, it might change night to night. So it's being interpreted multiple times over the run of the show. It's pretty cool. The, the difference between what you and I do in terms of, of, of that exercise with, with actors is that you might do 20 takes of a scene. And in that 20 takes, there's been the conversation, there's been the, what are we going for? What, what do we want to tell here? What are we trying to understand here? Right. And then you have the opportunity to really then choose the one that's going to serve your right. story. Right. Um, we're a little bit more like we're walking on a tightrope 
in that every time we tell the story, there is the possibility for all of that nuance. And that nuance is like dominoes, right? And that nuance will then, uh, a change in my performance will affect the change in your performance. But that's all oh, right. happening live, and there's no editing involved with it. So we don't get to choose the better or the worse performances. We can only start telling the story and tell the next part of the story and tell the next part of the story and tell the next part of the story. But it, by being live, uh, you still get all the nuance and the variation that you would get as a filmmaker in taking those multiple takes. You just have it happening right in front of you. And it changes from night to night. And some theater scripts are, are, are constructed to even change more from night to night. But there's always going to be uh, subtle changes, I think, from night to night. We work with a lot of actors, and I've noticed that the actors that I like working with most have theater experience for a couple of reasons. One, they tend to enunciate and they project and they're better for audio. And two, they can have a, they, they'll memorize much longer pieces of script. And in the middle of a five minute piece of script, you can, you can give them a note to change something in the middle. And they can do it, no problem. But see, that's because they have to, when they're doing a theater production, they have to go for 60 minutes straight with no breaks. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're up there. Flo you know, if you're on stage for 60 minutes, you're on stage and you're the thing that's happening. And uh, you better know what you're saying. Right. And you better know what it means. And you better be aware of what's happening around you and how that will change from moment to moment. The thing with theater actors is they also know everybody else's lines because they... They are, they're doing those too. Right. 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 And it's well, is amazing. Right. And they, they both know and can't afford to know what's coming next. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful sort of weird duality, right? We all know where this story is going to go. We all know the end of the story, but I have to create on stage um, the idea that it's happening right in front of you and spontaneously and that we don't know where it's going to go. And the best theater, I think, is the theater that you connect with in a way, even if you know the story. I recently saw Town in New York City twice. It's a brilliant, brilliant piece of theater. Um, and it's based on the Orpheus myth where um, Orpheus uh, turns around to look at Eurydice and uh, or he's, he's gone to save her from hell and uh, he can and, and, and he's been instructed not to turn around and look at her or the whole thing will be off, right? Uh, you know going into the story that he's going to turn around uh, and look at her. That's how the story ends. It's a Greek myth. We've known it forever and ever and ever. But to sit in the theater that night and to say, oh, don't turn around, don't turn around, please, you love her so much, don't turn around, right, is to, is to be involved in a way that I think makes you as present as the actors, makes you as an audience member as present as the actors. And that sometimes happens in film, sometimes doesn't. It happens in different ways with film, I think. I think intimacy with film can happen, you know, with your iPad or, or in, your, in your living room with a bowl of popcorn. Or, you know, there's a lot of different ways that you can become, I think, intimate with, with film. Um, but it's not the same as this live experience with theater. Definitely. I remember something that you said one time, um, and I'm not sure which production it was at Duke that you were directing at the time, but I remember that you said that you felt that it was your duty 
to start providing an experience for the audience the minute that they walked into the house. Even if the curtain wasn't going to go up for 20 minutes, that that 20 minutes prior to curtain was still your responsibility, the responsibility of the, of the director of that production. From the moment they buy their ticket, it's our responsibility. Uh, and you know who does this really well? Uh, Apple does this quite brilliantly, to be truthful. When I walk into an Apple store, there's someone to greet me and there's someone to carry, to carry me through the entire journey. I feel as though I'm not stupid in that context. I feel as though I'm welcome. I feel as though I've been invited in. And that's what I think um, a theater does and has a responsibility to do from the very moment that the audience gets there. What are some ways that you have used that engagement with the audience, with the, the person who's purchased the ticket, whether they've, whether they've purchased it, you know, I assume you mean at the box office when they arrive at the theater between that moment and the moment of the, you know, curtain going up. Well, you've always got the audience in a holding tank of some sort before they actually enter the space in which the performance is going to take place usually. Um, and so you have the opportunity to, um, an art exhibit, or you have the opportunity to, to have music playing in the lobby that will then enhance or begin to get their mind in the right mindset to, to, to understand or to be able to enjoy what's going on uh, when they get into the theater. There's also the opportunity oftentimes to do it. We've, we've often done environmental theater where uh, the entire space is, uh, the minute you walk into the space, there is, uh, you're learning about the story and you're seeing the actors and they're involved in some sort of uh, activity or something um, so that there is actually a, what we might call a pre-show, which uh, basically sets the mood for the production. But then playing with variations on that, um, uh, it's always very, very important to me, the last thing, the, the final sequence uh, when the house lights go out in the theater and it goes to black and then the moment that it opens up onto the 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 the, the play uh, those final sequence of moments what's playing what music might be playing how it's orchestrated how it's dovetailed into that moment of silence that you spend in black or do you not is there a loud noise that that you know brings you in but detailing that uh, I think makes a very important uh, way in which the audience, you contract with the audience. You're constantly in a process of contracting. And I think this is true in film as well. Uh, if, the, if the audience knows whether they're playing the genre game, which can be a real trap, or whether they're, um, um, you know, or whether they're learning the contract of how we're supposed to react, not how we're supposed to react, but how are we supposed to engage in this story? What are the rules of engagement for this story? That's the thing that, that the audience is learning as the play is unfolding, as the movie is unfolding. Um, and you, you know that you, 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 you can, it's either going to be successful or not successful, depending on number one, whether you bring the audience along with those rules or not, whether they're willing to, whether they're willing to take a sharp turn in direction. How many movies have you seen where there's been a sharp turn right and all of a sudden the audience is still over here, right? You know, they, they don't make that turn. And 
for instance, if you start to introduce supernatural visual elements in the last 10 minutes of the film, you feel cheated. Like, well, where were those at the beginning of the film? Why didn't I know that this was going to have about it uh, a supernatural element? You know, am I, why, why am I waiting? Why am I getting this information now? This is too much work. And so I'm, you've lost me. There's, there's world building in the beginning and this expectation of, once you understand the world and then it's not there anymore, it's extremely well stated. Uh, Yeah. We're always talking about the world of the play because until you understand that world of the play and until the audience understands that world of the play, um, then uh, you you don't have that conversation going on. And the playwright's job is to, is to, change that up, right? 70 scenes of Halloween, 70 different scenes done in whatever order they want. doesn't really matter. It's going to be a different performance every time you see it. Um, You know, that's constantly challenging that world. But if the audience understands that that's what the game is, that's what the world is that they're seeing, uh, then I think that they'll be able to to, to follow it uh, along. I think that's why they um, give films the thriller drama you know, they give them a, a title or a role. So you kind of know what you're getting into. And then you watch the trailer and you go, well, yeah, that that seems to be a horror. I get it. I'm into that. I'm going to go see it. And then all of a sudden it's a road movie with a romance. And you're like, what right. the hell just happened? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> this isn't a horror film at all. That's right. What was the production at Duke um, where, uh, I mean, and the set was just... Um, uh, one of the huge set elements was this woven wood and sticks. And I remember it was, it was performed in the little theater and um, Schaefer theater, the Schaefer theater. Yes. And that set element extended out of the theater into the hallway, into like a common space of this building. So if people who were walking by, even if they weren't going to the theater, there was the set element that extended out into the into the public space. It was almost like it was luring you into the theater, you know, when you encountered it. So I'll, I'll try, try to tell you a quick story about that. Um, we were in Carborough, North Carolina. We saw a sculpture made of twigs, unbound twigs that was creeping out of a building. It had been done by uh, now a world-famous sculptor by the name of Patrick Doherty, who, who, whose medium is weaving in a maple saplings. And we were so blown away by it, and we so thought it was the essence of what we wanted to do with theater, which was to surprise the public, to all of a sudden have something surprise them so that they would pay attention, right? And so we asked Patrick to build a sculpture. I'm going to get around to your answer, I promise. Build a sculpture in the shoe store window of the first performance, 70 Scenes of Halloween, at Man Bites Dog Theater in downtown in downtown um, Durham. Um When I then directed To Kill a Mockingbird at Duke, and we began to deal with the creative problem solving of what was this going to look like, all I could think about was that Patrick Doherty sculpture and a world that would be totally and completely woven in the set with all of these maple saplings and extend out of the front of the theater and extend out into the lobby so that there was something that was beckoning the audience or reaching for the audience. And Patrick Doherty agreed to um, do the sculpture, worked in um, co- in uh, collaboration with Steve Judd uh, for the, to create the set 
set design and uh, wove the entire sculpture in the set of To Kill a Mockingbird. And um, I thought it was a remarkable uh, coming together of of uh, design talent um, and a perfect metaphor, perfect metaphor for the play. Um, and Pat is Patrick Doherty is just astounding. I mean, you'll see him now in some of the major museums in the country it, and the world, really. It it, it created um, almost an extrasensory experience to see that. And you know, you think you're just going to go in there and see this this story that everyone knows, but then you see the set elements and you see how it extends out and it, and the, that particular element introduced all of the, it was so dynamic and it was twisted, literally twisted and furled up on itself in so many ways that the actual story is, you know, it, it was just, um, it was almost hypnotic you know, that, that element. Also, and beautiful to like oh, as well. It, it was incredible. Yeah. Some of my, some, I took some pictures for Steve of that set and, and it, it was beautiful. Well, it's, again, I think it's, it's, it's part of the storytelling. I mean, you just, you take on the, you take on the role of the storyteller. Yeah. I'm impressed that after all of these years and <laughs> that you remember those images. Oh, I mean, oh, yeah. that's, that's kind of remarkable and uh, makes me very proud. Yeah. Um, that isn't like landing on the moon, but it's it, it, it's a little thing that I think I'll be proud of for the rest of my life is that uh, maybe I've told some stories that were important to people and uh, that somehow it affected their lives in the same way that the normal heart affected our lives. You know, what you were saying about the, the immediacy of theater and that the fact that it's happening live in front of an audience, it's uh, in a in a real sense, what's the actors on stage are looking at the audience too. And it's a reminder that the audience, it's like the, it's like they're saying, you think you're here to watch us, but we're watching you also, you know, you're as much a part of this show as we are. And as all of the behind the scenes and in the, in the production crew, I went to a concert in Nashville one time by Bruce Hornsby and it was a solo performance and um, he periodically throughout his performance, he would noodle around on the piano and he would play very short snippets of, of songs, not pop songs. They might be a, f- a famous passage of a jazz piano piece or a famous passage by a classical composer. And about three quarters of the way through his performance, he revealed to us that what he was doing by playing those was he was trying to see what we, the audience, the amount of knowledge that we had for specific kinds of music. And by playing a certain passage from a, a jazz piece, if that elicited a response from the audience, then he knew he had these kinds of people in the crowd. Or another response based on another piece of music, he knew he had this kind of crowd, right? And then he could then tailor his show for the kind of people he knew were in the crowd, which I was just like, that's brilliant. Yeah, capturing the essence of live performance. I mean, just really being in tune with both listening and hearing the audience um, and also getting the job done that you want to get done. And it eliminates a little bit that un- un- uncertainty about, 
I don't know who these people are. I don't know what songs they're expecting to hear. I don't know what their musical background is. So it allows him to kind of poke and prod them a little bit and gain an understanding of what they already know, like what they've brought with them to the concert so that he can tailor that, you know, for them. Okay, I'm going to go off into a little tangent here, but the the real challenge, I think, during the pandemic is that we've been separated from one another. And so live is not, is sort of kind of live, but not, not really live. And, and both in terms of the teaching that I've done, I've done now um, the entire pandemic online uh, teaching at Duke. Um, uh, what I've learned in, 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 in terms of those kind of adaptations um, is that you've, um, is that you lose something, but there's also possibly, you know, something that you gain as well. But I think that we've also been adapting in a lot of different ways. I mean, you might say um, that the pandemic um, spurred you on to go further with this um, podcast series. Um, you know, so we've all been we've all been dealing with a major shift in the way in which we perceive time. Everybody's been affected. And we've all been affected for the exact same length of time. But that journey is really different for everybody. And that's after taking a world that was just pushing ahead, pushing ahead, pushing ahead. Um, And now all of a sudden, there are parts of it that just have stopped. And the question is, what do you do with that time? What do you do with that thought? What do you do with that thinking, you know? Um, uh, I started painting all of a sudden in the middle. I've never painted before in my life. But I understood that the paints in the tube needed to go on the canvas. And inspired by a lovely friend of mine from England who was also taking some opportunity this year to, uh, you know, experience visual art by actually doing it, Tom, um, I started to just sort of figure out what I needed to know in order to start making work. It, it, it was a necessity to make work. I mean, it was a necessity to, to, to keep certain skills, not, not like working out in the gym, but, you know, just keeping, keeping certain skills moving, um, keeping certain things going so that I could engage with students, so that I can engage with a sense of uh, what comes next for me. I don't, I don't really know at this moment uh, what comes next for me. So I'm in the process of, of, of looking at a clean slate again and beginning to redefine uh, those directions. We talk about that all the time. <laughs> we do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We can't wait to hear what comes next as, as you start figuring that out. And um, I think we'll just look ahead at a future date to reconnect with you on another episode and get updated on how things have gone once the pandemic is really and truly over. And Man Bites Dog Theater um, has settled into its role, uh, you know, post-pandemic role of actually being able to fund productions and, and, and give grants and continue to um, promote through other production companies, other productions, its message of bringing the brand of theater that it wants to see in this part of North Carolina, you know, to the people here. It's, it's really remarkable what you've done. Oh, great. Thank you very much. It's, it's been uh, nice to sort of talk about it. Uh, it, it, 
these are all reflective surfaces, right? And and the opportunity to come here and talk to you today is an opportunity to also hear myself talk about what I find is important. And uh, it's never bad to be reminded of those principles by which, uh, you know, you want to want to continue to do your work. I learned a lot about theater today. And one of the things that I, one of my takeaways is that I would love to see our film as a stage performance. I mean, holy shit, how cool would that be? That would be... That would be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I had never considered that until today. And as we're, as we're talking, my mind's, you know, the back part of my head's thinking of something else. And I'm thinking, man, that, how cool would that be to do an hour-long presentation? Or I don't know how long theater productions usually are, but a presentation, a live presentation of our film. Yeah. After we're done shooting it, let's shoot, let's shoot it first. Let's finish it first. <laughs> but yeah. then, so we'll be contacting you to help us create a, Great. a, a theater I'm, production listen, of our film. I am... Uh, I, I am currently employed as a professor at Duke University, but I've got an open slate in terms of my uh, my professional commitments at this moment. So I'm available. We want to thank you, uh, Jeff, for coming on to the show today and also want to thank our sponsor, NOSI College of Art. Where can we find more about you? Website? Uh, you, you mentioned uh, pre-show that you don't do Instagram, but what about Facebook? Yeah, I'm on uh, a Facebook as Jeff Store. Uh, and I'm also, uh, my website is J-M-S-H-E-E-P-D-O-G, jmsheepdog.com. Um, and so those are the best places to connect. Also, manbitesdogtheater.com, uh, manbitesdogtheater, all one word, uh, .com is also a great place to uh, connect up with um, the continued work that the company uh, is doing We'll post all that in the show notes on our Great. website Thank so people you. can just click a link and follow you there. If you would like to have the show notes or have access to the show notes for this or any other episode, as well as occasional bonus content that we post online, please make your way to our website at penumbra-ent.com. We also want to say thank you to all of the incredible people who have found this show online and are listening and we would love to hear from you. So please, if you have questions or comments for Chris or me, uh, send them to us um, at creativity at penumbra-ent.com. That's our email address where you can send any, any comments or questions. Again, creativity at penumbra-ent.com. Creativity Emotion is produced by the hardworking team at Penumbra Entertainment. If you like this episode, please consider subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode. And please follow Penumbra Entertainment on social media. On Facebook and Instagram, we're Penumbra Films. Jeff, before we let you go, we like to ask all our guests, um, and we also participate in this, one thing that you're looking forward to. I'm looking forward to what we're doing right now. I'm looking forward to being back in a room full of creative people, of which I'm one small part, and um, uh, creating a community um, with those people that um, um, can continue to make uh, theater. Um, and that's what's been so sorely missing during the pandemic um, is that um, it's really, really hard to do that um, electronically. It's a challenge to do that electronically. Many, many people have done great work, don't get me wrong, over the last uh, 16 months, but it's hard. Do you, got, do you answer this question? We do. Uh, go, yeah. go, go for it. Mark, go for it. Well, I, I tell you, I'm really looking forward to editing this episode and listening back to it because I, I um, personally, it's been very enriching and I want to make sure that I can capture all of that. 
as much as I'm enjoying this road trip and meeting people like you for the first time and, and what all the rest of the road trip we have yet to come, I'm kind of looking forward to being home and getting back to work on my boat. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm starting to get the, uh, I got to go out to the lake feeling and uh, my boat's not ready yet. So I have some things to do on the boat and I'm partway through it. I'm looking forward to getting the boat back together and going out to the lake. And I'm also, I'm going to, I have to add one more. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to coming to Nashville and actually knowing somebody in Nashville. Yeah. So <laughs> you have a home in Nashville now. Thank you. That'll be great. Yeah, absolutely. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of Creativity in Motion podcast. Until then, don't forget, creativity is how we move forward. 